1: Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. The Slovenian philosopher and cultural critic Slavoj Žižek has a number of prolific quips on various cultural and political issues around race and other things, found either in short YouTube clips or lengthy books, and have gained a lot of attention, much of it admittedly confused and occasionally offended and frustrated. Part of this is likely due to Zizek's style, which tends to jump around in a blur of philosophical and cultural references, sometimes obscuring what his actual point is. However, his eclectic style shouldn't deter us from trying to use Zizek's theories of fantasy and ideology to understand the racial dimensions of our current political situation. This is what my guest today, Zahid Zaloua, is here to discuss with his new book, Zizek on Race Towards an Anti Racist Future, which was released by Bloomsbury just last month. Zahi Zalua is the Cushing Eels Professor of Philosophy and Literature and Professor of French and Interdisciplinary Studies at Whitman College. He is also the author of Continental Philosophy and the Palestinian Question Beyond the Jew and the Greek, as well as Theories, Autoimmunity, Skepticism, Literature, and Philosophy. So, Zahi, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh,
0: Thank you, Stephen.
1: So to start, can you tell us a bit about yourself and what your main research interests tend to be?
0: Yeah, so I tend to work at the intersection between philosophy and literature, Um, interested in questions of race, gender, representation, politics, ethics, the state of globalization. So these are kind of my general areas of interest. Uh, Recently, I've been taking up the kind of Zizekian imperative um, of the universal, thinking of a universal politics. And Zizek on race is one way of thinking um, the question of race through kind of universalist perspective.
1: All right. So to start, we should get a few key terms or ideas on the table. One of the first you bring up is what Zizek, following Sarah Ahmed, calls civil racism or racism with a friendly face. This points to Zizek's popular quip about capitalism with a friendly face. So can you maybe unpack civil racism a bit?
0: Sure. Uh, So for me, civil racism um, is another form of racism. It is a racism unaware of itself as racist. So it goes, how can I be a racist? Right? I I If the I here refers to a white subject, I profess my respect for for the non-white other. So how can I be accused of being a racist? Um, so here, civil racism is a racism that expects non-whites to behave according to the desires of whites. You can celebrate your culture or way of life, but make sure to do it with moderation. So here again, civil racism civil racism is a type of racism that lives under the radar in the age of post-raciality. And here, Zizek would stress the post-political. Many, if not most of us in America, people who are not on the receiving end of racism, basically considers racism a problem of the past. Of course, we have occasional flare-ups, but these are exceptions to the post-racial norm. And here we can point to the 2017 events of Charlottesville. Um, They were a reminder that the old form of racism did not completely disappear. But at the same time, I was not satisfied with the ways uh, mainstream media paradoxically limited our understanding of racism. So it went like this. Look at the neo-Nazi or white supremacists. Here is the racist. Here is the problem. We're not the problem. What white liberal society desires for others is a kind of de- decaffeinated alterity, a taste of otherness that will not upset my white stomach. This is as much a fantasy as a belief in the possibility of a capitalism with a human face. Right, Zizek's um, repeated assertion. In both cases, the champions of capitalism and white liberal society think think that the only thing that matters, right, the only thing that can be improved. Um, is a mere tweaking of capitalism and liberal society without any fundamental changes to the ontological makeup of these institutions. What, we's, what is needed, according to them, is less neo-Nazis and less greedy CEOs. So that's basically uh, the vision of, uh, of civil racism that, that Zizek, following Ahmed, um, alerted us to.
1: Another key theme throughout Zizek's work is violence, which you split into subjective and objective violence, the latter of which then gets split into symbolic and systemic. Can you unpack these terms a bit for us?
0: Sure, sure. And here I'm following Zizek's distinctions of violence and seeing how they play out in the context of race. So subjective violence is the type of violence that is most readily accessible and visible, right? Um, Whenever you can locate the victimizer and the victim, you have subjective violence. Objective violence describes the background violence that goes on when nothing seems to be happening, right? So you can think of objective violence as a violence of everyday existence. Under objective violence, we can further distinguish between symbolic violence and systemic violence. Zizek talks about symbolic violence as a generalized condition of language and meaning production. Language does violence in the very act of representation. So here representation unavoidably abstracts, simplifies, and distorts in its creation of a meaningful world. In a racial context, symbolic violence takes place in language, in the language we use to describe racial minorities, in the very words we use to racialize others. The N-word does this, this kind of violence. It reduces, it reduces black bodies to something less than human, and the human here being the ultimate measure of who counts and who doesn't. Zizek talks about systemic violence when referring to the oppressive structures or institutions that have been thoroughly naturalized. And his main example is, of course, capitalism. Many people experience the violence of capitalism but this kind of violence has a phantasmatic character of a natural disaster. Capitalism is like the air we breathe. It appears, and here I stress, appears as natural, with no genuine alternatives. And here again, in the racial context, we can see systemic violence at work in the logic of global capitalism. Western nations experience violence as a momentary disruption. For example, terrorist attacks. But third world countries experience the brutality of global capitalism on a daily basis. Citizens of the third, of third world countries are the globally discounted and neglected. So this is how they experience their systemic violence.
1: One thing that has often been a point of contention in Zizekian thought is his prioritization or emphasis on class at the expense of what we might simplistically refer to as identity in its various forms, such as gender, sexuality, race, etc., You argue that it's not as simple as simply making class a priority and making race a sort of secondary phenomena, but instead that it fits into a more dynamic understanding of fantasy and capitalist ideology. So, can you unpack Zizek's understanding of ideology and how race here fits into it? Sure.
0: So, ideology for Zizek often works by distorting what is going on. When problems are framed around this, A simple choice, A or B, and in this case, class or race, meaning which one is more important, class or race. And when you're doing this, when you're formulating the opposition between race and class, you're doing not only a great deal of simplifying, you're also compounding the problem with your fake answers. So why is racism a problem today? Why are the media and politicians far more comfortable talking about the racism of neo Nazis, but not the racism intrinsic to capitalism? An eye for racial capitalism declines to answer the question class or race, or it answers it in the, Zizek, in the Zizekian fashion of the yes please. Racist ideology often circulates through cultural fantasies, they impact us unconsciously, libidinally. These fantasies teach us how to desire, who to hate, who to love, who to identify with, who to blame for my condition. And this is racism at work, right? Through cultural fantasies, cultural fantasies supply me with an answer to the question, to this fundamental question for Zizek, who is stealing my enjoyment?
1: In chapter one, you highlight the difference between the multicultural liberal practice of, quote, checking your privilege, and you contrast it with the Zizekian psychoanalytic Marxist practice of checking your fantasy. Can you unpack privilege as you understand it here? And how does Zizek find it ultimately to be a limited practice for addressing injustice? And how is checking one's fantasy different? And how does it uh, make up for the shortcoming here?
0: Yeah, great question. Um, so the injunction "check your check your white privilege" seems to be motivated by a desire to do something about racial injustice. So on the face value, it is a political gesture. Right? It gives you the person uttering the saying the impression that you're doing something about race, right? And that's where kind of the ideology slips in behind this kind of political gesture. So what happens with check your white privilege, check your male privilege, these utterances um, amounts to nothing more than a policing of the other's thoughts with no real impact on society's systemic form of violence. Worse, it gives the liberal subject a surplus enjoyment in hating the haters. The Zizekian practice of checking your fantasy reconfigures desire as a social matter. Your desires are never simply your own. They're always mediated by the gaze of the other, the big other, for Lacan. Check your fantasy is really a call for checking our fantasy. It blocks the the neoliberal invitation to privatize social justice, to depoliticize your intervention. It reconfigures really the politics Of privilege.
1: You start putting Zizek later on in dialogue with Herbert Marcuse to discuss enjoyment and happiness and their relationship to the dynamics of capitalism. What was Marcuse's original analysis of the relationship between these forces and how does it inform your and Zizek's critique of neoliberal multiculturalism?
0: Yeah, so the connection that I wanted to make in thinking Zizek with Marcuse concerned how Marcuse's notion of undeserved happiness was doing the kind of critical work that Zizek was doing with respect to today's horizon of possibilities. Zizek fre- frequently quotes the 68th slogan, Soyons réalistes, demandons l'impossible. Right? Soyons réalistes, let's be realistic, let's be pragmatic subjects. Demandons l'impossible, let's ask for the impossible. This slogan is akin to Marcuse's utopian call for the need for undeserved happiness. It reintroduces utopia as a leftist project, and here not utopia as an escapist gesture, a refusal to engage the real world, but utopia as an attempt to render the impossible possible. Undeserved happiness is also something that implicates all of us. The claim, I need, undeserved happiness, is actually open to all, must be open to all. Marcuse's notion of undeserved happiness politicizes happiness in the way that Zizek politicizes enjoyment.
1: Looking at the situation in Israel and Palestine, you turn to Emmanuel Levinas' analysis of the situation, which you and Zizek feel falls flat. What was Levinas's use of otherness to try and untangle the situation in Palestine? And why, in Zizek's account, does it fail to really address the problem?
0: Yeah, so, yeah, my engagement with Levinas dates for many years now. Um, and... I see more clearly that the problem with Levinas' engagement with the Palestinians is fundamentally significant. It's not just a blur in his general ethical orientation. He repeatedly fails to account for the Palestinian as an ethical other. And this could be explained in at least two ways. We could say that Levinas fails to enact his own Levinasian standard when it came to Palestinians. So here you could do a Levinasian critique of Levinas. You could offer your own account of the face of the Palestinian, defaced by Israeli transgression. You can be more Levinasian than Levinas, and at least when it comes to Palestinians. Now, a different line of critical inquiry questions the political viability of the Levinasian model is a model that ontologizes the other as victim, ethically and politically desirable, especially in light of his treatment of the figure of the Jew as the ultimate singular victim. The Palestinians, even after the Sabra and Shatila massacres, are never elevated to the status of of the other in Levinas's works. In contrast. For Zizek, the face of the other in Levinas is exclusively reserved for Jewish Israelis. Right, He makes that connection straight. Um, the radicality of Levinas' philosophy of the other turns out to be fake. Sameness trumps alterity. What is needed is a political model that breaks the implicit hold of the nation state. What is needed is a model that disrupts Levinas' investment in the Jewish state of Israel. And here Zizek finds this model, this alternative model, in the biblical figure of the neighbor.
1: Zizek's own counter solution that you just brought up is to embrace the biblical dictum to love the neighbor, although this has for him a very radical meaning. So can you explain what he means by commanding us to love our neighbors and how would it apply to either the situation in Palestine or the refugee crisis in Europe, to provide a couple potential examples.
0: So Zizek reads the figure of the neighbor through the Lacanian registers of the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. The imaginary neighbor is a neighbor who looks like me. He mows the lawn on Sundays just like I do. The symbolic neighbor is a neighbor with whom I share a language, a certain juridical political standing in society. The real neighbor is the most ethically and politically relevant figure of the neighbor. And here Zizek returns to the Jewish imperative, love thy neighbor, which for him points to the radical alterity of the neighbor. The neighbor is precisely not the one who resembles me, the one with whom I share a symbolic identity. Zizek's examples of the neighbor are crucial. He finds in Primo Levi's account of the Muslim that live on that living, dead, faceless figure of Auschwitz, a paradigmatic example of the neighbor. With Musulman, no relations are possible. Empathy itself is unavailable. The other is always already faceless. Zizek finds this account of the neighbor ethically and politically far more promising than Levinas' model. And here, right, to return to Levinas' We can say, unlike Levinas, Zizek positions the Palestinians as neighbors. He adopts and adapts the biblical injunction to the Israeli Palestinian situation. He says, quote, Love thy neighbor means love the Palestinian, who is their neighbor by excellence, or it means nothing at all. End quote. And for Zizek, Israelis refuse next, um those Israeli um, IDF soldiers. Who refuse to um, do their duty in the occupied territories? Right, these refuseniks are living are living up to the demands of the injunction. Love thy neighbor. So here, using that model of how Žižek reads the refuseniks, we can see Žižek's um, call has called to his fellow Europeans to do the same vis-a-vis the refugee crisis. How Europeans relate to the refugees ought to provide a kind of ethical and political injunction worthy of its name, right? Loving the other, loving the neighbor here is not to want to transform the refugees into another face of European subjects. One has to adopt the radical other and invite him, invite her in Europe.
1: Turning to post-colonial theory, Zizek, along with several of his peers, has regularly gotten into hot water because of a more Eurocentric vision of emancipation. You connect this to an older debate between Jean-Paul Sartre's existential Marxism and Franz Fanon's. Postcolonial theory. So, what was going on in this original debate? And in what ways do Zizek's contemporary comments, as well as the pushback against them, repeat this?
0: Yes. Um, so, Zizek's critic um, frequently cite his 1988, um, his 1998 article, A Leftist Plea for Eurocentrism. They argue that he is not sensitive to the violence of Eurocentrism, to the violence of European, Europe's colonial past, and to the West's uh, neo-imperial ambitions. What is usually missed in this critique is the important qualifier of leftists. It is the universalist impulse behind the European project that Zizek is looking to revive, not its colonial past or imperial ambitions. What Zizek means by universality is significantly different from the standard meaning. Zizek is not endorsing universalism, suit as the unmarked position of the white male masquerading as a universal speaking for all of humanity. This is arguably the position Sartre occupies in his exchange with Fanon in relation to the movement of niquetude. Fanon was, of Fanon, uh, Fanon was critical of Sartre's existential Marxist interpretation of the Négétude movement as a mere moment in the dialectic and not its endpoints. Sartre urged the movement not to lose sight of the big picture, class struggle, which is really the truly emancipatory project. Fanon, of course, was also critical of the negative movement. He was suspicious of its investment and in rootedness he found it problematic that Négétude assumed a homogeneous model of blackness, which ignored fundamental differences among blacks. But unlike Sartre, Fanon also underscored the movement's effective appeal. Its appeal to a younger black generation who were taught precisely to hate themselves. But I think here that Zizek is not Sartre. Zizek is far more attentive to this kind of effective appeal. Seth's approach to politics, to racism, engages society's political economy and its libidinal economy.
1: You turn to Zizek's ontology of the parallax, a fractured reality incapable of ever being totally whole as a way of trying to address the Israel-Palestine conflict. Can you unpack Zizek's philosophical approach here, and how does it help us maybe think more productively about a situation such as the one in the Middle East right now?
0: Sure. So I use Zizek's ontology of the parallax to rethink the classic base structure distinction in the context of Palestine. So Zizek says, quote, all the economy is the real site and politics... Sorry. Um, Although economy is the real site and politics is a theater of shadows... The main fight is to be fought in politics and ideology. End quotes. I wanted to use this insight to rethink and further unpack the idea of binationalism, right? um, the, the alternative to the defunct two state solution. Binationalism is a commitment to coexistence between Palestinians and Israeli Jews. And this idea was really revived by Edward Said almost single handedly. Binationalism is is this kind of commitment to the two parties living together, where no one people has an exclusive claim to the land. If the idea of binationalism is to to mobilize change, to challenge Israelis' apartheid regime, and infuse life into today's theater of shadows, Palestinians must remain attentive to the antagonism inherent in their social structure and then lose track of their true enemy. In other words, we have to think of binationalism both as a struggle against domination and a struggle against exploitation. So here, the struggle against domination would be to argue for equal rights, that binationalism assumes all people are equal. Jews, Palestinians are equal. But this can be the only argument you make in behalf of on behalf of binationalism. It also has to be a struggle against exploitation. The economic structure cannot be forgotten or just taken as a given, as if you can have a peaceful solution while capitalism is left untouched. So we to, to give binationalism is um, is political teeth, one must think this kind of simultaneous struggle against domination and exploitation.
1: Turning to fantasies around race, you turn to Lacan's pathology of suspicion. What are Lacan and by extension Zizek getting at with this pathology and how does it help us think about uh, ideological responses to situations such as you talk about Hurricane Katrina, for example?
0: Yes. Um, so Hurricane Katrina made visible how white, how white culture Fantasizes about black criminality. Zizek turns to Lacan's notion of subject supposed to know. This formulation represents the function of the analyst rather than the analyst as such. Zizek's version of that formulation is the subject supposed to loot and rape. As with Lacan's formulation, the subject supposed to loot and rape does not refer to black subjects themselves and what they actually have done or not, or any kind of evidence-based suspicion, but rather denotes the phantasmatically projected black body. The subject supposed to loot and rape illustrates the working of ideology and the enjoyment racists get from finding their speculation and suspicion confirmed. So how do you combat this form of racism? Is it by showing the racists what the facts are? No. Right, the fundamental problem here is not one of cognition. White racists will point, will have pointed out that there was evidence of some violence in New Orleans Superdome. But this is the work of ideology. White racists are lying in the guise of truth. The racist liberal economy trumps the primacy of facts.
1: Turning to one of Zizek's most famous but also misunderstood pronouncements. He famously wrote that Gandhi was more violent than Hitler. And you could maybe extend this statement to Martin Luther King, although this is obviously going to strike many likely more liberal commentators as ridiculous, although that's part of what makes it such a great Zizekian quip, is that it seems so counterintuitive. Can you unpack what Zizek means here and why maybe liberals should be perhaps Open to embracing some forms of anti-racist violence, as Žižek might understand it.
0: Uh, you're absolutely right. Critics love to jump on this claim by Žižek, but here, right from the very start, the distinction between violence and non-violence itself has to be troubled. For Žižek, an effective form of anti-violence can be very violent, right? Unsettling, if not destroying, the oppressive structure that you're opposing. At this level, any society is intrinsically conservative at its core. It seeks to reproduce itself. Any demand for radical change, the just treatment of, soci- of society's minorities, actual equality before the law, right, these demands will be experienced as violent by society. These demands and the realization of these demands. What Zizek has no patience for is the liberal fetishized view of nonviolence as a kind of moral sense. Nonviolence, in this sense, is white privilege. You can feel good about your resistance without really expecting anything to change. What liberals often fail to see is that if someone has their boot on your neck, nonviolence may not look like an obvious option or may not be an option at all. And this is where Zizek wants to refocus on, not violence and nonviolence, but what is a successful strategy for unsettling the system. So if nonviolence can be a shock to the system, he'll endorse nonviolence. But violence as such is not the problem
1: for for Zizek. In turning to Afro-pessimism, you turn to an analogy between the slave trade and the Shoah. Well, it might be intuitive to think of these two things as parallel. You see a fundamental difference in what these two events did to their victims. Can you unpack the disparity between these two events and what deeper logic does it refer to that sets Afro-pessimists apart from other forms of anti-racist scholarship?
0: Sure. So Afro-pessimists like Frank Woodlesson do not diminish devastation of the Shoah but they point to the way slavery is eclipsed by the Shoah. Agabin and others point to the Shoah as the moment of fundamental crisis in modernity, right? disclosing the dark side of biopolitics. But what about modernity prior to the Shoah? Afro-pessimists underscore how Africans experience what Wilson describes as a metaphysical holocaust. Their very being, their ontology was negated. Blacks became the anti-human. And for Afro-pessimists, modernity begins with the slave trade, with the creation of the human at the expense of the black. For Afro-pessimists, blacks are haunted by their former status of slaves. Anti-blackness survives the abolition of slavery. Anti-blackness here is similar to anti-Semitism or Islamophobia to the extent that it involves um, a racialization of others. We are introducing a distinction between you and them, right? Them being the undesirable others. What is different, however, is the ontological difference of this distinction when it comes to Blacks. Blacks are not simply others. They are other than human. And that's the big difference.
1: Writing on the case of Trayvon Martin, you look at a number of attacks on Trayvon's character perpetuated by the right as a means of legitimating what happened to him. Without wanting to deny that these attacks are themselves racist, you argue, along with both Zizek and Afro-pessimism, that the liberal response to these attacks reveal the limitations of liberal anti-racism, since it fails to get at, and in certain ways reifies, the underlying pathology that caused such an event in the first place. So, can you unpack this pathology and how addressing and moving beyond it may require a deeper response than simply arguing that Trayvon was a good neighbor? So, the Trayvon Martin case may have been a shock to white liberals, but for blacks,
0: anti blackness is nothing new. Among white liberals, there is this impulse to identify with the victims of racial violence. In this case, they want to defend Trayvon. But they can only do so if Trayvon is presented as pure, an innocent victim. So for for them, Trayvon becomes their imaginary neighbor. The real Trayvon is too unsettling to handle a confront. It is much easier to project innocence to the dead. But there is no place for defending Trayvon's right to undeserved happiness, to take up uh, Marcuse's earlier saying. All right, this would account for an engagement with systemic violence, with objective violence, with symbolic violence. And here the liberal white culture is really only interested in reducing instances of subjective violence. The liberal desire for identification with black goodness is the adverse side of the right-wing rejection of black badness, of perceiving blacks as subjects supposed to trespass and rob. And here, they're basically doing the same thing. They're abstracting from actual black subjects. You either make them purely
1: innocent or you make them intrinsically um, criminals. Towards the end of the book, you bring up a really interesting tension, where on the one hand, specific forms of oppression and marginalization should be understood as separate and having their own separate dynamics, so as not to flatten all differences into a single ontological flatness while on the other hand, wanting to build forms of solidarity and coalition across different groups. Can you explain this tension and how Zizekian thought might help us build these coalitions without forcing certain groups and differences to disappear entirely?
0: Yes. Yeah, so for me, the Black Lives Matter movement kind of illustrates nicely what Zizek hopes for kind of movement to look like. Here, the movement represents for me a fruitful alternative, um, an alternative model to identity politics. The movement emerged as a response to anti-Black violence and police brutality, but it did not end there. Their support of the Palestinian cause revived an internationalist coalition model. Black-Palestinian solidarity is not here about a shared identity but a sheer struggle against global injustice. And there's something admirable here. There's something universal in this common struggle that is fundamentally open to all, right? It is open to all subjects who have been excluded from global capitalism, right? what Roncier calls the part of no part. And this is something that Gigi constantly picks up, right? This is the universalist position, not the position that enjoys society's goods but the position that has been systematically excluded from society, right? Those who do not count, they're the universal subjects. And bringing those candidates for the part of no parts together does not rely on some kind of underlying substance or identity, something positive that they all share. It is the exclusion that they share. It is a site of empty side that they share, which then could be mobilized for a universal struggle um, across racial um, movement that can actually exert pressures on capitalism, on racial capitalism, and on global capitalism fundamentally.
1: All right. So as kind of a final question, we always like to ask our guests what, if anything, they're working on now. So do you have anything, uh, any projects or anything you're Doing research on?
0: Yeah, so I'm I'm finishing up um, a book called uh, Being Post Human, which looks up at different sites um, that have kind of exerted pressure on the idea of the human. Um, So I look at the cyborg, the animal, objects, and the very idea of black being as a kind of negated um, being. So how these vectors allows us to think of the posthuman in a kind of critical fashion. Um, And another project I'm also working on here um, in collaboration with a colleague, Ilan Kapoor, is on universal politics, taking up the task um, that Zizek kind of um, lays out um, and exploring how that looks like um, in today's uh, society, looking at the workers' struggle, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter.
1: Hmm. Well, Zahi Zelua, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you.